Welcome to Immigrantly, a podcast that challenges us to reimagine the immigrant experience. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and I am so excited about today's episode, and I will tell you why. But I'll start with a quote from journalist Derek Thompson, who wrote this Atlantic piece in 2019 titled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. The quote goes, The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Unquote. Isn't this quote fascinating? It really got me thinking. And by the way, he defines workism as the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work, unquote. Honestly, these quotations made me think a lot about the way I approach work. These words really resonate with me on a profound level because I do see my work as my calling, a passion and an all-encompassing pursuit of self-actualization, whatever that means. Over the years, I have seen my spouse wholly entrenched in his work at the expense of his time with family and friends. And it's been a painful experience for me. Yet, he still sees his work as a manifestation of his self-worth. And now I also witness similar tendencies among my daughters. They are too young to experience such emotions. But why is our work so inextricably woven into our very being? Why do we measure our worth by our professional achievements? Have you ever been told by your boss that where you work is supposed to be your second home? Do you think of it like a home at all? Did you ever actually like the job? These questions, I'm sure, are relevant to the lives of the countless individuals and all of you, our listeners. But our guest today says... It might be wonderful not to like that job at all, but have it to be good enough to sustain your life. Yeah, you heard it right. I got to speak with Simone Stolzoff, author of the beautiful and informative book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Now, Simone's work has appeared in publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic and The Wall Street Journal. Simone is an expert on workplace relationships and people's relationships with work, although he doesn't think that. In these conversations, from conferences to even Stanford, Simone helps people navigate career transitions, identify trends about the future of work, and develop a healthier mindset about work. Join me today as we delve into the fascinating world of work-life balance, redefine success, and explore the good enough job concept. So let's get started.
Simone, thank you so much for being on Immigrantly. I'm excited. And I'm excited that you're in New York. I didn't know you lived in San Francisco, and this is your first in-person interview. Yeah, it's a pleasure, and it's nice to be in the studio and be able to actually look at each other across the table. It's fun, right? Yeah. This is my first in-person interview in months. Mm. I haven't come to the studio because a lot of guests are on Zoom, and they prefer to be on Zoom. And I don't know why. It's a lot more fun to be in person, but I'm glad we're here. So I have read part of your book. Thank you for sending me the soft copy. And I've been looking through it. And it's an amazing, remarkable read. And I have a lot of questions, but I am approaching all of this from a place of curiosity Mm -hmm. and at times ignorance, because I have never worked in American corporate sector. Mm. I've been part of nonprofit sector, which is a bit different. And it's also different because a lot of times we are able to justify that our job is our calling Mm -hmm. and it's our passion, Mm. which may be a myth in itself. But I will start with a quote from your book and I quote, We are workers, but we are also siblings and citizens, hobbyists and neighbors. In this way, identities are like plants. They take time and attention to grow. Unless we make a conscious effort to water them, they can easily wither. Tell me, how do you define a good enough job? Because this quote and the entire book basically talks about how we should try to parse out or in a way differentiate ourselves from our jobs by doing a good enough job. So Simone, define for me what a good enough job is and how do we strike that balance between doing our work and our work not overwhelming us? I define a good enough job as a job that lets you be the person who you want to be. It's intentionally vague and subjective because I think one of the beauties of the term and the framework is that you can define what your definition of good enough is. Perhaps it's a job that makes a certain amount of money or a job that has a certain title or is in a certain industry or a job that gets off at a certain hour so you can go pick up your kids from school or go on that afternoon bike ride. But whatever that definition of good enough is, I hope you recognize when you found it. It's a foil to the idea of a a dream job and thinking about how our jobs might be able to support the lives we want to live as opposed to the other way around. Tell me, what benchmarks should people use to define a good enough job? I think it really depends on the person and sort of their life circumstance. Rather than thinking about the job as sort of the central axis around which the rest of your life orbits, how can you think about your vision for a life well-lived? And then think about how a job might support that vision. For example, you know, maybe if you want to live in a place like New York City, you have to make a certain amount of income in order to do so, to support the lifestyle that you want to leave. But if you are prioritizing other aspects of your life, maybe the hours are more important and that's what will determine a good enough job. Or maybe it's the coworkers or the type of work-life balance that a particular workplace presents. And that quote that you read in the beginning, I think, 
The argument behind it is that rather than think about work at the center and then trying to squeeze life into the margins, we need to take an active role in cultivating these different sides of who we are, the, the parent, the sibling, the citizen, the friend. And I think one of the, the risks or the, the damages of work culture in America today, as the psychologist Esther Perel says, too many people bring the best of themselves to work and then bring the leftovers home. You know, we try and spend all of our best hours and energy at the office and it leaves little room for these other parts of who we are. You know, you bring up Esther Perel, and I'm a huge fan. I tried for the longest time to get an appointment with her. Mm. I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) And you're absolutely right. This is so true. But here's the thing. When we think about good enough job, do you think it is across the board, across different industries, or there are specific industries where it's easier to do a good enough job? For instance, when we look at technical industries Mm. where a person is doing some technical job, It's easy to clock in, say, nine to five or whatever number of hours and then disassociate yourself from the job. You go home. But for instance, if somebody is in a more creative job, it's sometimes difficult to disassociate yourself from the job itself. How do you see creatives disassociating themselves from a job and looking at it as an economic transaction rather than something that really defines their self-worth? I think it can be particularly hard in creative industries or industries with sort of a social mission. I'm glad you brought up sort of the nonprofit sector and some of the other sort of care-oriented professions. And in our lines of work, you know, as a journalist, as a podcaster, our name is on everything we do. It's hard to separate our identity from our output or our jobs. But I think it's that much more important that we do so. There's been some research on this topic, and what they found is that when people have what researchers call greater self-complexity, which essentially just means have cultivated different sides of who they are. They are more resilient in the face of adversity, which makes sense. You know, if you are your job and something bad happens at your job, then it can spill over to all the other facets of your life. But they also tend to be better creative problem solvers and, and more innovative because you have these distinct sources of inspiration. You have room in your days for ideas to bounce off each other and to synthesize all the inputs that you're taking in. And I think for nonprofit sector or education, or healthcare, it can really be a double-edged sword. And, you know, maybe this is something that, that you found in, in your past nonprofit work where there is this sort of perceived righteousness of the work itself, you know. And there's this term that I reference in the book called vocational awe, which was coined by this librarian. And she was talking about how in her line of work in libraries, there's this idea that libraries are these sort of democratic paragons of perfection. But it's actually that halo effect that can cover up a lot of the injustice that exists within the industry themselves. And so by framing a job as a calling or a vocation or an identity or a passion, it can actually obscure the reality, which is first and foremost, a job is an economic contract, as you said. It's an exchange of a worker's time and their labor for a paycheck. And certainly it can be a lot more than that. It can be a meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of community. But the more clear-headed that we can be about the sort of transactional nature of work, I think the better. 
I really like this approach and I like the framework that you use. But Simone, at times I think there is a lot of focus on how employees should mm. and can approach their job. But there are so many other factors. If we take example of the US, the idea of the American dream, mm-hmm. right? America being a meritocracy, which it isn't at all. Mm-hmm. But this idea of you can achieve whatever you want to do. And then America being one of the more economically productive nations, mm-hmm. right? I can think of China being extremely productive. Mm-hmm. And when we start thinking about the good enough concept, then in a way, there has to be some compromise in terms of how America sees itself mm-hmm. in terms of being economically productive or to the level where it wants to be mm-hmm. and how the citizenry sees that as well. Do you think there is a trade-off there? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it's no surprise that one of the reasons why the U.S. is so work-centric is because we exalt productivity as one of our highest sort of values as a country. From my experience, you know, my family's Italian, and part of the inspiration for the book was this kind of cross-cultural analysis of thinking about other countries that might have a different relationship to work or a different sort of hierarchy of cultural priorities and how that reflects in culture. And so, you know, the United States has created tons of wealth. They've created tons of jobs and innovations that have definitely benefited the world in many ways. And yet, I don't think it's an either-or question. I don't think productivity and balance are necessarily mutually exclusive. In fact, Mm. I think that in order to be sustainably productive over a longer time horizon, you need to incorporate rest and balance and protection of life outside of the office. In the U.S., we can tend to be short-sighted when you think about the wins of, say, a quarter or a week or thinking about getting that next kind of performance review metric checked off. But the flip side of that is the mentality that we are what we do or our self-worth is tied up in our ability to be productive comes at the cost of our ability to work over the long term. And it's no surprise why there's this burnout epidemic in the United States, why so many people are reimagining their relationship to work coming out of the pandemic is our ways in working right now are not working for the people that are doing the work. Talk to me about your family. I want to go back to that. So I was reading your book and you mentioned your mom's work ethic and how she approaches her work versus your dad's. And they're both psychologists, right? Mm -hmm. My mom had a little bit more of a worldly perspective as opposed to what is customary in Italy of kind of going to school closest to home. She got a scholarship to go study in Rome and that really broadened her worldview. And then she moved to the United States and met my dad. You know, they have different perspectives on work. I think my mom treats work as more of a means to an end, whereas my dad treats work more of an end in and of itself. I don't think either approach is necessarily bad. You know, I think different strokes for different folks. But we live in a culture that loves to revere people whose identity and their jobs neatly align. You know, the, the painters, the artists, the social entrepreneurs. And I think one thing that I've learned from my mom's approach is that, you know, she has a very clear idea of why she works. She works so she can, you know, 
feel comfortable, live in the way that she wants to live, to be able to support her son's education, for example, to be able to fly back to Italy to see her family. And so that idea of why we work is, I think, very important to get in touch with because the alternative is that we sort of default to the reasons why other people want us to work, what the market values as opposed to understanding what we value ourselves. But do you also think it has something to do with how work is monetized and hence our self-worth is pretty much measured in numbers, which is easier to understand versus if I pick a hobby mm-hmm. or if I'm taking care <clears throat> of my kids, then my self-worth manifests in different ways. But anybody looking at my work may not be able to understand how valuable it is, especially in an American society again, because there's so much focus on monetary value or the value added that a human brings, which can be measured in some form. Mm. Right. So for me, when I think about all of this and when I was reading your book and it's a beautiful read because there are so many places where you pause and think, Mm. how do we make that paradigm shift in our society from consumerism to something else or looking at our work as means to an end and not an end in itself? How do we make that societal shift? You make a great point. You know, I think one of the reasons why so many people rise and fall with their professional accomplishments is because those metrics are very legible. In offices, you're quite literally ranked and your compensation is an indication of where you are in the pecking order. You know, I think a huge cultural shift is hard to pinpoint. It can come from the bottom up. It can come from the top down. I think we've seen a lot of rethinking during the pandemic and people reconsidering what they want their relationship to work to be. I think that's really the first step is about awareness of having different models of what, quote unquote, success looks like. You know, when we talk about whether someone was successful We don't mean whether they were happy or healthy. We mean they've made a lot of money. And I think we're undergoing a pretty profound cultural shift where people are thinking about different ways of defining success. And so if you think about some of the the top-down ways to intervene, one of the reasons why our relationship to work is so fraught in the United States is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. When, for example, your health care is tied to your employment status or your ability to stay in this country on a visa that is tied to, you know, a W-2 job. And so from the top down and kind of the policy or government layer, I think we need to decouple our basic human needs from our employment. And that can come in in many forms. We've seen some subtle shifts through the child tax credit or different sort of re-knitting of the social safety net during the pandemic. But it has to come from the bottom up as well. You know, one example that I bring up in the book is that Japan as a country has one of the most progressive parental leave policies in the world. I think new fathers are entitled up to a year of paid time off. And in the last data that I looked at, 5% of Japanese fathers took the time that Mm. they were allotted, which points to these sort of two parallel necessities. We both need the policies in place to be able to protect workers' life outside of work, but we also need the cultural will to do so. And I think that's where the individual comes in and thinking about, okay, if we want to live a less work-centric existence, 
workers need to have autonomy and agency in their ability to diversify their identities, to find other sources of meaning beyond the job. And, you know, one of the trends I chronicle in the book is that one reason why work has become so central to Americans' lives in particular is because there are fewer other sources of meaning or community with the decline of community groups, with the decline of organized religion. And I think changing the culture really starts by people actively investing in some of those other sources of identity. You know, you bring up such an important point, and it's a great segue into my next question about how you make this comparison between decline in organized religion or subscribers of it Mm. and increase in one's association with their work and change in work ethos. Talk to me a little bit more about that because it's so fascinating. Mm. What you're saying is that people are, in a way, replacing organized religion with work because all of us as humans are intrinsically looking for purpose. Mm. And that purpose could be religion, faith, Mm -hmm. or it could be work. So we all end up worshipping something. Yeah, so there's sort of like two questions in that. There's why organized religion has fallen off in the United States and some other kind of developed world countries as well. And the second is why did work come to take its place, you know, become this secular substitute? And the first one, you know, if you look at kind of the peak of religiosity in the U.S. in the 1950s, four or five percent of Americans did not associate with an organized religion. So the vast majority of people had some sort of religious identity in their life. And then in the 70s, you start to see this precipitous decline of these organized religions. And to the point where today, almost one in three Americans does not associate with an organized religion. They're either atheist or agnostic or just you know don't really believe in anything. And, you know, there's many different causes of this. One is just With greater wealth, people tend to be less religious. You know, our country's GDP has grown a lot. There are things like the internet, which have helped people find solidarity in some of their doubts and find communities of other people that might share their skepticism of organized religion. There's the kind of politicization of religion, especially the religious right that has equated sort of conservative politics with Christianity and and driven a lot of people away. And it has been exclusionary, right? Exactly. Yeah, and you were seeing that that in in the headlines and the policies today. But the second question is, why do work take its place? And I think you can think about all the different quote-unquote jobs that a religion does. So it's a faith. It's a way of thinking about the world that has a, a moral compass. It can also be a huge source of community through the people that you're, you know, in the synagogue or the pews or the mosque alongside. It can be a source of purpose. It can be a vehicle for philanthropy or making an impact. And, you know, I think there's no doubt that the workplace can provide a lot of those things as well. I mean, frankly, it's where the Americans spend most of their time. And so those needs for belonging and community and identity remain. And a lot of people transpose that to the workplace. But, you know, what I argue in the book is that our jobs are not necessarily designed to bear that burden. This is an important point, Simone, and I want you to elaborate on it. Why do you think our jobs are not designed to do that, especially for people who view them as such? First and foremost, our jobs are a material relationship. You know, they exist for the betterment of the company. And as so many people have found out in the last few years, 
loyalty to shareholders or to a company's bottom line will always trump loyalty to its people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people have this sort of moment of disillusionment where the spell of work breaks is, you know, when it comes to a layoff or a furlough or when a company comes on hard economic times, they can't always be there for their people. The author David Foster Wallace has this great line where he says, everyone worships. The only choice we have is what to worship. Right. And whatever you end up worshiping will likely eat you alive. You know, <laughs> worship, worship beauty and you'll never feel beautiful enough. Worship money and you'll feel like you never will have enough money. And worship your job and you'll feel like it's never good enough. It's mm. never paying you enough money. It's never prestigious enough. And one of the arguments I say for worshiping something like a god or something in the religious realm is that, as my colleague Derek Thompson argues, it's, it's less falsifiable. If you put your faith in God, God is not going to let you off one day. And you also talk about this new concept of bringing your entire self to mm -hmm. the job is in a way problematic. Now, I am a huge believer of bringing your entire self to mm -hmm. the job. And when I say that, what I mean is being yourself, whether culturally, ethnically, your work ethos, your social ethos, being unapologetic because it takes the pressure off. Mm -hmm. You're not pretending to be somebody else, mm -hmm. right? But what I understand from your framework is it is unnecessary to do that because you're there to deliver services and be rewarded for it through monetary gains. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, mm -hmm. you don't really have to because that can create other complications. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I think there's a difference between creating workplaces where people feel included and people feel comfortable mm. being who they are and not having to, say, put on a, a face in order to show up in a corporate environment, and workplaces where there's an expectation that you have to bring your whole self to work. I think it's important to separate those two because in the latter situation where people are expected to overshare about their personal life or to, you know, stay late on a weeknight to get their work done, it can create an environment that actually exacerbates inequality and helps people feel excluded from the environment when they don't necessarily adhere to the norm or what is the sort of the dominant culture of the workplace. And yet, I think there's been a lot of rhetoric and, and some progress in creating offices where more people feel like the playing field is level. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, remote work has actually helped for this in a number of ways, especially for certain marginalized workers that didn't see themselves and their colleagues or didn't feel like they were part of the dominant culture. You know, when you work remotely, it can level the playing field to a certain extent and have people's ideas be what is first and foremost paraded around the office as opposed to their identity or how they look or where they come mm. from. In some ways, the question around whether or not to bring your whole self to work is a is a semantic definition. You know, none of us can bring our entire, entire right. selves to work. But it's a question of finding that balance between inclusivity and making sure that people can do the functions of their job, you know, what's in the job description, and still be rewarded for that, even if they don't go out drinking on a Friday night. 
So on the flip side, are we not saying that then we are not normalizing the different human experiences and vast spectrum of humanity that we exist, whether it's cultural, ethnic, religious, sexual? What are your thoughts on that? I think people should feel comfortable to be able to be their authentic self at work. There's a difference between a worker proactively being able to choose what they want to share with their coworkers and that imposition being placed right. on workers. And so there's an example from the book. There's this professor at University of Michigan named Erin Check, and she studies sort of the double-edged sword of following your passion and kind of the paradox of passion. And one of the examples she gave was at this hotel chain, people that worked there were forced to wear these name tags that said, hello, my name is blank. And I'm passionate about blank, you know. And I think that's an example of sort of bringing your whole self to work in a way that is extractive and not actually in employees' best interest. It's sort of like the passion economy equivalent of like service with a smile, where not only do you have to do your job, but you have to, you know, wax poetic about how passionate about the job you are. And it sounds performative to me. Exactly. And forced in a way. Totally. And so I think, you know, at the extreme, that's sort of one of the main risks of the ethos around, you know, bring your whole self to work is maybe someone doesn't want to. Maybe I don't want (laughs) to share. I want to have clear boundaries between my work life and my personal life. But at the same time, as you were saying, we are more than just workers. And I think being able to acknowledge how the different sides of ourselves and our demographics play into our perspective. And I think both of those things can can coexist. It can be an inclusive workplace and not be paternalistic in the way that that culture is is passed down from the top. So Simone, I'm interested in your journey. Now, you've had a few jobs and I assume now you're doing the good enough job (laughs) (laughs) and pursuing your passions and hobbies and stuff. Talk to me, how has that journey been like and were there any surprises along the way, even when you were following your own advice? Yeah, it's an interesting place to be in right now for a few reasons. One, you know, the book comes out tomorrow. And oh, so, congratulations. Thank you. I'm sort of at this place where I've written this book about the importance of separating our self-worth from our output. And yet there's this like extremely materialistic, quantifiable <laughs> moment in my career that's about to come up. Layered on top of that is, you know, I just recently started working for myself. So I have had sort of a meandering career which you alluded to. I worked in journalism and I worked in design. I worked in tech. I worked in advertising for a little bit. And now as I have written this book chronicling the culture of overwork in the United States and how work-centric our society is, I am working for myself and I'm finding that sometimes I'm my own worst manager. <laughs> you right. know, it's hard to draw the boundaries in my own work life when I am the only one responsible for what I am producing. And so it's really a test of some of the the wisdom for the book. You know, I, I make it very clear that I am by no means an expert when it comes to getting these things right. And I actually think that the idea that there is a right way to have a relationship with your work is flawed logic. It's more of a wobble, and there are different phases of our careers, there are different seasons of our lives, and there isn't this sort of proverbial static equilibrium of work-life balance that, like, once you achieve it, you just sort of 
float five feet off the ground, <laughs> you know? It's in actuality, it's a constant question of figuring out what our relationship to work should be. And I think I wrote the book to help people reflect on it, to help people put their jobs in the perspective and in the context of the rest of their life. And also it's fluid, right? Mm. Maybe at some point in life you can maintain that balance, but then that balance may tilt more towards you working. And you talk about being an entrepreneur mm. and doing your own stuff. And that's a very difficult place to navigate this work-life balance because I started the podcast and then I started this company of content creation and now I'm adding more podcasts and it becomes very difficult because in my mind, I'm creating something that is so necessary and in my mind, it is necessary, right? Mm. And other people may not see it that way. But then for me, it's thinking about it 24 hours and yeah. I have to be intentional not to think about it as much. And I wonder how are you being intentional in giving yourself that space and not thinking about your work and your book and what you're putting out in the world as much? The best way that I found to do so is to outsource the willpower, is to, <laughs> to do things other than work. You know, I think one of the hard parts of individually imposed intentions or boundaries is that they inevitably break. Right. And so rather than just thinking, okay, I shouldn't treat work as such a big part of my identity or my sole source of meaning, the antidote to that is to find other sources of identity and, and meaning, you know, and when the work and your jobs at the center of your life, it doesn't just take your best time, but often your best energy too, you know, and maybe this is something that you found as you're growing your business is if you are just eating and breathing and sleeping your job, it leaves room for, for little else. And so what I'd advise you and advise anyone who is, is looking to maybe think a little bit less about their job or to diversify their identity beyond their professional lives is to think about how you can actively invest in other identities or other sources of meaning. You know, you brought up that metaphor of a, a plant and how it has to be watered with our time and energy. That's true for, for each identity that exists within us. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a religious tradition. It can be your recreational softball team or, you know, your book club. But as you water them with your attention, they will also grow inside of you. I am a practicing Muslim, so I do focus on my faith. And then I have kids who take up a lot of my time as well. And recently I've started going on these long hikes with my husband because mm -hmm. that's the only time where he and I can really connect mm -hmm. in the wilderness when he doesn't have his phone and I don't have my phone mm -hmm. and we are not checking it every five seconds. I also think it's quite cultural. So the culture that I come from, a collectivist culture, community-based, mm -hmm. always prioritizes family and community over anything else. I am in a way hardwired to prioritize those things. I will always, in a way, prioritize my family and my bond with them over anything else. And America being hyper-individualistic, mm -hmm. it also becomes difficult for people to connect with anything else other than something that is very personal to them. And job, in a way, is more personal than other activities that people engage in, right? So what I'm hearing is that there has to be a paradigm shift in so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Individualistic societies versus collectivist societies. 
lack of religion and what that means and how people manifest it. Now, lack of religion is fine, but how people manifest that also is something. And then government policies, because America prides itself in being this capitalistic society, which can be so problematic. Mm. There aren't as many social services or social safety nets that we talk about. Wages stagnated. No health care outside your job, no free education. Mm-hmm. So, Simona, there's a lot that yeah. will have to come together for it to manifest in ways that you're hoping it to manifest, right? Of course. And, you know, if you are holding your breath waiting for universal health care, you, you're, you're going to suffocate. You know? right. And I think and this can be really disempowering. It's, you know, similar to any sort of big social change like addressing the climate crisis. If we're just waiting around for top down intervention, you know, can really alienate us. And so one question that I would pose to your listeners is, what is one small way that you can actively invest in your non-work self? You know, I don't think it has to be big. I'm reminded of this conversation I had with a psychologist that sees a lot of like ambitious type A professionals. And she says, okay, you know, you should try and like invest in some other aspects of your life. And they say, okay, I've got it. I'm going to sign up for an Ironman or I'm going (laughs) to try and read 52 books this year, you know, and in many ways, like try and turn their leisure into another form of work or another form of striving. And so I think it can be really small. It can be a weekly hike date with your husband or it can be a game of tennis that you play with your best friend or trying to pick up a new musical instrument, not because you want to become a rock star, but just because it's a creative outlet that helps you get in touch with who you are when you're not working. And so that's what I would urge people to think about is what is just one container, one realm of your life where you can measure your own success by something more than your ability to achieve. That's a great point. But I do want to ask you, how do you think this manifests in gig economy where people are doing four or five jobs, they are not tied to one, which is in a way good, right? Mm -hmm. But then it also means that everything becomes a job, like they're doing things all the time and they have to monetize in a way. And then we bring in social media where people are monetizing social media presence. So everything is so intertwined. That's a very important point. And it's important to separate the issues that are facing hourly and, and gig workers from some of these issues that are more kind of ethereal and existential that are plaguing knowledge workers. For a perspective, the majority of workers don't work to self-actualize. They don't right. work to be point. their sort of greatest reflection of their personality or their self. They, That's a privilege. They work to survive, yeah. And, you know, there's a whole host of other conversations we, we could be having of how to make work suck less for people that are having to work more than ever just to put food on the table. You know, in the book, I chose to primarily focus on white-collar, college-educated knowledge workers. And I did it because, for one, they're the workers who are most likely to look for work as their source of self-actualization and identity. There's an inverse relationship between how much money people make and how many other sources of community and identity and meaning they have in their life. I think out of necessity, you know, people who don't have as much have to be more mutually reliant and they Mm. have to cultivate other safety nets on on their own because they can't necessarily rely on a paycheck or the government to help them out. 
it's tricky. It's sort of like a, a both and thing. And we need these interventions at the scale of policy and at the scale of company policy as well. And we need individuals to have a mindset change in order to be able to locate work as just one aspect among many that can lead to a fulfilling, meaningful life. How much do you think revival of unions would help or facilitate this process? I am very for it, you know, and I think we're at a time culturally in the U.S. where the approval rate for unions has never been higher since 1965, I believe. And I think it represents this sort of worker empowerment of understanding that workers have strength in numbers and that managers and the ownership class don't always have workers' best interest in mind. You know, we're seeing this in the writers in Hollywood, but also, you know, the teachers in Oakland. And I think this this shift towards unionization and and collective organizing represents an acknowledgement that we need protections in the form of contractual obligations. Absolutely. Not the rhetoric around, you know, doing what you love or working (laughs) for something greater than yourself. You know, the difference between a workplace and a family, in a family, the love is unconditional. And in (laughs) the workplace, the love is conditional by definition. So Simone, are you saying no more happy hours and winter parties? I don't think so necessarily. You know, I think work can be a source of community in people's lives. And the data shows that people that do have friends at the workplace tend to be happier and stay at the company longer. But I think there's a difference between making those types of activities mandatory and making them something that workers can opt into. I just think people need to actively invest in other sides of meaning and identity. You know, it's so interesting you say that because in America, we have introduced laws that give workers an option to be part of a union or not, right? Mm. But we don't give them an option to attend a winter party, (laughs) which is so crazy, right? Yeah, I think, you know, especially what we might think of as progressive workplaces do a lot in in the forms of, you know, benefits and, and treating workers well that seem to come at the expense of workers' acknowledgement that they are workers, that they are working Mm -hmm. in solidarity with other people working in their field and workers across the economy. You know, one of the theory pieces that has really stuck to me is that in the United States, sort of this core mythology around the American dream leads lots of people to believe that they're just sort of one lucky break away from being an owner themselves. And it leads to people voting in ways that are against their own best interest because they think, okay, just in in a few lucky breaks, I'll be the boss myself. Exactly. As opposed to the reality, which is just the numbers of it all. We can't all be owners. We can't all be bosses. And I think workers are waking up to the fact that when they band together, there is strength. You're so right, because in America, ownership is so sacrosanct. And a lot of rights exist with the owners, right? And you see that at the expense of employees, whether it's busting unions or other laws that are detrimental. And you said this in the beginning, but I do want to circle back to the impact. We've seen that after COVID, there is more work-life balance and people are opting for hybrid structures. And that's because people were not organized, but there was a critical mass Mm -hmm. who decided to do this. 
So imagine that critical mass being organized and rooting for their rights or being proponents of what they need in form of unions. That could do wonders, right? A lot of our standards around work are not always that way. You know, things like the 40-hour work week or the two-day weekend or the nine-to-five day, they are the result of labor organizing. They're the result of workers banding together to demand better conditions which is to say that they were negotiated before and they can be negotiated again. Again, exactly. Simone, you are always welcome to come back and talk to us more about this because as I said, your book is fascinating. Thank you for sending me an advanced copy. I'm reading it. I'm enjoying it. It's very intuitive in ways as well. And I would like every single person to get a copy. And talking about getting copies, should they get it from Amazon or do you have an independent (laughs) bookstore that you want them to go to? There's a website called bookshop.org that allows you to buy something in a similar experience to Amazon where it shows up on your doorstep, but the money goes through the individual bookstores in your neighborhood. And yeah, you can learn more at thegoodenoughjob.com. That's where all the links are to different places you can get to get the book. And by the time this episode airs, it'll be available everywhere books are sold. In the end, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. If you were to define America in a word, a sentence, a phrase, how would you do that? I would define America as a place that believes dreams are equally accessible to everyone, but does not create the conditions for that to be true. On point. Oh my gosh, I love it. Thank you so much, Simone. This was so good. Thank you for coming. It was great being here, Sadia. Renowned psychotherapist Esther Perel once said, don't give the best of you to strangers and bring the leftovers home. Instead, keep some for those who love you, unquote. I truly think that as Americans, we have lost the ability to differentiate between our personal life and our work. Our work has taken over our lives. And to be honest, I don't know how to separate the two. I don't do it myself either, which is sad. Although I do consider my work as my calling and my passion, I know there is so much room for other stuff in my life, which I have set aside. But how do you feel about this? Do you think we should distinguish between our personal lives and our work? Is it even worth it? And do you think it will have to be a critical mass of people for it to be successful rather than one person taking a step in the right direction? Write to me with your thoughts, with your feedback on this very special and interesting episode. You can always reach me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. This episode was written by Rene Harris and me, Sadia Khan, produced by me. The editorial review was done by Shi Yu. Our incredible editor is Hazi Ahmed Farid. And theme music for Immigrantly is done by Simon Hutchinson. Until next time, take care and work less. <laughs>